morning. What a great harvest week it has been. All the beans came off in the harvest this past week. It was just amazing. And uh, a big thank you, especially thankful this morning for the baker's dozen of helpers that showed up on Wednesday and really spruced up my face a whole lot. Much appreciated, Patty and I give you a lot of thanks. Big help. Well, if you're looking for a one-liner to sum up today's message, it might run something like this. It's good to acknowledge one's limits, but to spill over with gratitude. Let's pray. Or it's good to be here, good to be with your people. Or we would rebuke by your Holy Spirit any evil spirits that might be lingering, any distractions, anything that would deter us from focusing on the cross of Jesus and what you've won for us. Also, your marvelous gifts of creation and uh, our hope at the end of time. Or just uh, let your spirit be present in this hour. It's good to acknowledge our limits, to live within suitable boundaries. Sometimes instead of making multiple trips to move some items, I try to take it all at one load, but end up dropping something in the process. If this is you, yeah, you can relate. I don't like that limitation that I can only safely handle one or two items and instead pile on more than I can handle. Recently, for example, I was putting things in the fridge when the parmesan shaker at the back at the back of the top shelf of the fridge tipped over. While I took out the peanut butter and some jam jars to get in to try and reach it and set it up straight, but doing so, a jar, a jar of raspberry jam slipped out of my grasp and shattered on the frame of the fridge, oozing its gooey red goodness all over the floor. What to do but clean it up? I thought I'd got it all until a couple of weeks later we went to move the fridge out so the painters could paint in behind on the wall, and my transgressions once again caught up in indisputable, sticky, congealed redness. Better to have acknowledged my limits, set items aside one at a time to avoid the <coughs> When it comes to relationships, it's also good to recognize our limits to have healthy boundaries. Sometimes other people are only too happy to load on us what's not rightly ours. As has been quipped, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life. Pastor Jones had served the church for more than 30 years and was loved by all. He was especially known for his gardening. Fortunately, his replacement, Pastor Smith, didn't know a spade from a hoe. One day a church member approached Pastor Smith with a comment. You know, our former pastor always made it a point to mow not only his lawn, but the church lawn as well. I'm aware that Pastor Jones used to do that, replied Pastor Smith, and I discussed it with him. He said, now that he's no longer pastor, he doesn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> this morning, let's learn more about recognizing limits and how that plays into Thanksgiving by looking at two passages in Jeremiah 5, Colossians 2. Jeremiah prophesied in Judah, the southern part of Israel, from about 626 to 586 B.C. You may recall about 722 B.C., the northern kingdom based in Samaria fell to the Assyrians who exiled the Israelites to a variety of foreign countries and brought in other people groups in their place. The southern kingdom of Judah, apart from some reforms during the reigns of Hezekiah and Josiah, continued in idolatrous practices such as child sacrifice, which was introduced by Manasseh, burning your own children in the fire. What an awful thing. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because 
most of his long career was taken up with warning the people of the disaster that would come unless they repented of their sinful practices. Despite repeated persecution and imprisonment, he lived to see his prophecies come true. The Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and deported many people in 586 BC. John MacArthur describes the general attitude of the population this way. Religious insincerity, dishonesty, adultery, injustice, tyranny against the helpless, and slander prevailed as the norm, not the exception. And concerning the prophet Jeremiah, he was threatened, tried for his life, put in stocks, forced to flee from King Jehoiakim, publicly humiliated by a false prophet, and thrown into a pit. Being a prophet isn't an easy life, is it? He must have had great faith to endure such treatment and keep proclaiming an unpopular message. Well, in chapter 5, the Lord describes a word picture to try and break through the blindness and dullness of the rebellious people. Verses 22-23. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should, not, should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. Is the sea smarter than you? Seems to be the question. The sea recognizes its boundaries. It stays within its limits. By contrast, the people of Israel keep transgressing the limits God sets. Their stubborn rebellion results in them leaving God's paths, departing from his commandments. I know the shoreline at Lake Huron is quite a bit different this year with the water level being higher. I mean, I like to walk along the shore sometimes. Some people have lost a lot of beach and there's been significant erosion along the shore. But the main point is the lake remains basically in the same spot. Huron County is not going to be lost from the provincial map. Melting of polar ice caps is a concern, but so far the only variation is a rise in sea level of 4 to 8 inches. Broadly speaking, apart from human interference, the sea respects its boundaries. In contrast, verse 24 points out what ought to have been the Israelites' attitudes. And this is where our passage today relates most specifically to Thanksgiving this weekend. Uh, most preachers, when you talk about Thanksgiving, Jeremiah 5 is not their go-to text, but it is in here if you look at it. Verse 24, they do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. All of the logic here. Verse, productivity in grain and garden ought to prompt us to fear and revere our Creator who set it all up. Fear God who gives rain, who assures us of harvest. The Living Translation makes the connection more strongly. They do not say from the heart, let us live in awe of the Lord our God, for he gives us rain each spring and fall. Assuring us of a harvest when the time is right. Live in awe of God, for because he provides rain and harvest. Some may wonder at the emphasis upon fear. Is that just Old Testament, or how's that tied? Verse 22 also has, Should you not fear me, declares the Lord. 
The Hebrew word Yahweh means to revere, revere, be afraid, to stand in awe of, reverence, honor, respect. Who doesn't want more R-E-S-P-E-C-T? Who is more worthy of honor, respect, awe, and reverence than he who created the earth, produced soil, the water cycle, and seasons, invented photosynthesis, designed plants that already have the capacity and wiring within themselves to reproduce their kind, etc., etc. Even just the changing of the color of the leaves in fall ought to remind us how precious is the gift of chlorophyll that allows plants to make the carbohydrates and oxygen we depend on in order to live. Flag! Don't take it for granted! And that's not even beginning to take into account forgiveness of our sins, won first by Jesus' death on the cross. <coughs> Creation, redemption, future hope, so much to be Do we tremble in the presence, verse 22, of such a great and wise and powerful God? Or just treat it ho-hum? We've got it coming to us. We're entitled to it somehow. Thank God for both photosynthesis and respiration, the tiny, complex, intricately operating chemical factories our cells are. This sort of thing doesn't just happen. This is a super intelligent design. Regarding fear, the NIV Study Bible notes this word has a sense of reverential trust in God that includes commitment to his revealed will. To actually fear God as he deserves prompts obedience to his direction. As the passage continues, the Lord, through his prophet Jeremiah, identifies three characteristics of wicked people who refuse to give thanks to him as his actions warn. Verses 26 to 29 reveal that instead of being thankful and grateful, they are discontent, deceitful, and desensitized. Us Discontent. They're obviously well off. Verse 27 describes them as rich, powerful, fat, sleek, apparently quite prosperous. Verse 26. Among my people are wicked men who lie in wait like men who snare birds, like those who set traps to catch men. What animals? Men. Seems they're not satisfied with what they already have. Instead, they're always hatching plots to get more. In fall, it's turkey season and deer season. Hunters wait patiently in their blinds, hoping to catch some wildlife. But here, the victims are people. Slave dealers, robbing people of their very freedom. Are those who produce the food, clothing, and electronics we enjoy paid adequately? Treated humanely, or are there sweatshops trying to pump out our cheap goods? Are we content with what we have? Can we hardly wait for Black Friday and the Cyber Monday? John the Baptist coached some who came to him, Luke 3:14, be content with your wages. Timothy 6:16. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Whenever we've eaten well and things are going smoothly, it's a temptation to suppose we've accomplished it all on our own and to forget God. Moses urged in Deuteronomy 6, 
And the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land of large, flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful. You do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. Take your oath in his name. Discontented. Second characteristic of the wicked in Jeremiah's time is that they were deceitful. 527. Like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit, trickery, plotting, conniving, people who can't be trusted. Honesty and trustworthiness ought to characterize those who claim to follow a God who is totally faithful. He can be counted on. Are we people of our word? In verse 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? We should reflect that. Instead of being deceitful, Jesus commanded Matthew 5, 37. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes. Those who are deceitful may think they can get away with defrauding others. Recently, a family member found their credit card had been compromised. Over $1,000 had been stolen, first in smaller and then larger transactions. Reportedly, an air conditioner company, trying to take them to the cleaners, I think. Thankfully, the individual spotted the false charges and contacted the credit card company, avoiding a huge loss. Would you be thankful, even after being robbed? Bible commentator Matthew Henry, after being robbed, wrote in his diary the following. That made me thankful. First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it was not much. <laughs> Fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. Discontent, deceitful, robbing, Third, Jeremiah's countrymen were desensitized. If you're desensitized, you're not acting in a caring way toward others. A minister just resigned his position as pastor in order to answer the call of another congregation. A lady in the congregation came to him and said, Pastor, we hate to see you go. Things will never be the same again. The pastor said, oh, don't worry, Mrs. Johnson. I'm sure the Lord will send you a new pastor even better than me. Mrs. Johnson said, well, that's what the last several pastors have said, but they keep getting worse and worse. <laughs> not the most sensitive thing to say. Uh, Jeremiah 5, 28. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? The stubborn and rebellious people of Jeremiah's day were desensitized, not caring about the plight of the fatherless and poor. As we sit around our groaning Thanksgiving feast tables, can we think of someone locally that could use some blessing? Somebody far away, pick up an Operation Christmas Child and shoebox, way of blessing them. This exploiting of the poor was continuing on from before the northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. 
Amos a long time before and prophesied, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, Bring us some drinks. Isaiah, in his first chapter, observed, Your rulers are rebels, companions of thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The poorest case does not come before them. So the poor didn't even have a chance to get their case heard in a court of justice. Likewise, in the New Testament, James castigated the rich. Says in 5.4, Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. God was listening to those who were being oppressed, and not those who owed them the money for the job they did. What does James define as true religion? Can we read the bottom there all together, James 127? Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress, and keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Don't be desensitized to the needs of the disadvantaged. It's good to recognize our limits, to acknowledge our boundaries, in particular to show a reverential awe of God that moves us to worship Him and follow His ways, condensed for us most aptly in the teachings of Jesus. There's one area in which scripture commands us to go beyond the limits, that of giving thanks. Colossians 2.6 says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. I just want to park on that, overflowing, spilling out over top. The Greek term, parasu, means to exceed a fixed number of measure, abound, overflow. Let your gratitude be boundless. Other passages echo this obligation to be grateful to the Lord. Colossians 3.17 is a little later. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. 5.20. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both those passages mention thankfulness in connection with in the name of the Lord Jesus. A phrase that seems a little bit abstract and kind of tossed around when we really think about it. We're going to do things as his authorized representatives belonging to him. If he is our Lord, we acknowledge he owns us, our our actions are to be extensions of his will, his plan, governing him. When the serviceman comes to tune up the church photocopier, he comes in the name of Midwestern office equipment. That's the name on the vehicle. His actions are governed by the contract the church has with the company. He's not there to clean our toilet or check the soundboard. He looked at the screen by asking to do that. He's there for the photocopier, as laid out in the contract, the covenant, if you will. Similarly, similarly, our giving thanks is connected with our being Jesus' king, carrying his name wherever we go, inserting his kingdom of love and light into this world's nooks How can we live thankfully instead of like the wicked in Jeremiah's time, discontent, deceitful, dissent, 
And what else Colossians 2, 6 and surrounding verses say? You received Christ Jesus as, as the Lord. The gospel is a gift. Continue to live in Him. You consciously locate yourself in Christ moment by moment. Verse 7. Rooted and built up in Him. Anchored, supported, strengthened in the faith, or NRSV more literally, established, made firm or stable. Trusting Jesus helps you not be knocked off kilter by upsets. 2.8 warns against being taken captive by hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Are you filling your mind with listening to just TV and pop music or meditating on biblical truth? What the world serves up is not just deceptive, it says here, but hollow, empty. There's not the substance to it. By contrast to verse 9, for in Christ, let's read this one together. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Twice there, word fullness. Look at that when you're groaning after Thanksgiving meal. You're not just full. It's a better fullness. Are you? Have you received the fullness of Christ Jesus instead of all philosophy? Jesus is the real deal, substantial, lasting. When you have Him, you have God's very fullness at your core. Having Him, you have no lack. You have fullness to hold on to into eternity that others are not finding in their own philosophy. Godliness with contentment is great pain. In our limits, we acknowledge Christ as our sovereign, head over every power and authority. He's our fixed point of reference in our supply. Part of thought. Can you be always giving thanks as Ephesians 5.20 commands? Can you do what 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says? Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ. People want to know what's God's will for your life? God's will is right here. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's part of it. There. Ten Boom in the Hiding Place relates an incident that taught her always to be thankful. She and her sister Betsy had just been transferred to the worst German prison camp they had seen yet, Ravensburg. On entering the barracks, they found them extremely overcrowded and flea infested. That morning, their scripture reading in 1 Thessalonians had reminded them to rejoice always, pray constantly, and give thanks, and all circumstances. Betsy told Corey to stop and thank the Lord for every detail of their new living quarters. Corey at first flatly refused to give thanks for the fleas, but Betsy persisted and Corey finally succumbed to her pleadings. During the months spent at that camp, they were surprised to find how openly they could hold Bible study and prayer meetings without guard interference. Not until several months later that they learned the reason the guards would not enter the barracks was, you guessed it, because of the fleas. There were limitations, but they could nonetheless overflow. Lord, you have blessed us so much in the physical realm, so much to give thanks for that. How much more, Lord, when 
our, our stomachs are empty and our bodies are in the ground. We have more to be thankful for in the eternity. Thank you for fullness in Christ. Thank you for salvation. Thank you draw us to yourself. Thank you for not letting our lives remain hollow and empty. For filling us with your goodness by Help us live that out, Lord. Share your bounty.